everyone and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. In today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome adventurer and motivational speaker, Molly Hughes. Molly summited Mount Everest at the age of 21 and broke her first world record at 26 when she became the youngest woman to summit both north and south sides of Mount Everest. In January 2020, she broke her second world record by becoming the youngest woman in the world to ski solo from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole at 29. Here we talk about how she got there, the highs and lows, and why she does what she does. Oh, and just to warn you before we begin, there's a couple of rude words in this podcast. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So, Molly Hughes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, Molly, I'm, I'm resisting the urge to just dive in and talk about where you've just come back from. Um, and I really want to start by understanding a bit about you, a bit about your background. So you have two world records under your belt, but what made you want to pursue these challenges? Yeah, so um, for me, it's just been a slow journey. Okay. And I know getting to this point now and doing everything I've done, I'm looking back on it doesn't feel that real um, because it all came so kind of organically so it basically started when I was 17 and okay. I joined a school expedition to East Africa um, we did some charity work and then had the chance to climb Mount Kenya and just that experience of climbing uh, reasonably high altitude um, getting to the top the clouds all swirling around me um, I was just hooked and I knew that climbing mountains was something I was going to do probably for the rest of my life um, and I slowly slowly just built it up with a, a real kind of passion for travel and I wanted to see the world um, as young as in my late teens um, and I was excited about all these cultures that I could go off and see um, and through those trips I would climb mountains um, as a part of every every trip I went on so off to the Himalayas in India off to South America back to Africa a few times um, I just loved it really loved it and the first adventure or the first expedition uh, the first world record that you <laughs> broke was climbing both the north and south sides of Everest and being the youngest woman to do so. Yeah. So what made that your target? Um, so when I, when I was climbing when I was younger, I never really thought it was something I was capable of or okay. something I'd want to do. Um, but when I was in my family at uni, I was studying down in Bristol and I was studying um, psychology with sports biology. And for my kind of end project, my dissertation, um, I kind of knew I had to write about something that was really interesting. Because I was pretty dyslexic, I wasn't that academic, so the idea of like sitting down and writing a ten thousand word essay was kind of terrifying. Yeah, so I, needed to <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I needed to think of a subject that was really interesting, so I would sit down and, and pursue it. Um, and I kind of wrapped my brain to what I was interested in, which was climbing mountains. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, what's one of the biggest like psychological challenges in mountaineering? Um, obviously, Mount Everest comes to mind. It's the most famous mountain in the world, the highest mountain in the world people have these epic tales and struggles to, to get to the top um, so from my dissertation I investigated the psychological experience of climbing Mount Everest um, and through that project I got to sit down with seven guys who'd all summited you can only find guys at the time unfortunately that there were no women that I could find so wow, I sat down with seven guys who were all amazing um, I just explored their journey like their motivation their kind of ability to control fear that kind of psychological pressure that they all explained when they were sat down at base camp looking up at that huge mountain above them um, and just from talking to them it was literally the first interview with this guy called Scott in London I was just hooked and I was just like 
I don't want to write about this anymore. I want to go and see it with my own eyes and travel through the Western Coombe and up the Luxy face. And if I'm lucky enough, take those final few steps to the top. Um, so yeah, I had an ambition, but obviously I was pretty young. So I was still at university, I was 20 years old. I've only been climbing for about four years and Everest is a big, scary 8,000 meter peak. So I had to spend um, a year like intensely training in the Alps and mm -hmm. the Himalayas and then raising the funding as well, which was the hardest thing in the world as a 20 year old um, living in Bristol, not knowing anything about business or like at the time I didn't really know what PR stood for. Um, okay. <laughs> create, yeah, like create this campaign, um, just trying out different things. And I remember I'd have like a 30 or 40 page sponsorship proposal that was just me like blabbering on about my expedition and the things I thought I could offer big, huge companies. And I sent it out to like loads of companies each week and just get like no response or a lot of rejection. Um, so I just kept doing that, kept doing that. Um, and in the end, the money finally came through. Um, went off to the south side of Everest and managed to get to the summit um, when I was 21, on the 19th of 21. May. 21, <laughs> yeah. wow. Um, and then went back for the north side in 2017. Okay. And you were 26 at that point? Side, yeah. Okay. So tell me about getting game ready. So you, you've just, you talked about the transition of, you spoke to some people about the psychological impact yeah. of undertaking such a big challenge and rather than scaring you off, it made you um, really, really want to do it yourself. So how do you prepare physically, but I'm really interested actually, how do you prepare mentally for such a challenge? Yeah, so with all these big challenges with Everest and with Antarctica, um, I have to have this like real want to do mm -hmm. it and a real need to do it. And I've been like so inspired to go and try and climb Everest. I was so inspired to go to Antarctica. It was like this deep down urge inside me to go there and try these expeditions. And I think that just fueled everything. And it let me get through all the really tough training. It let me get through all the really tough sponsorship hunting. Um, and also the mentor side of it as well. Mm -hmm. But the training like physically is uh, challenging. I, I kind of enjoy it sometimes. Um, but for Everest, it was lots of climbing up and down hills with really heavy rucksacks. And psychological training is hard. I think that kind of comes more through experience. So the more okay. you can like put yourself in these trickier situations, put yourself out of your comfort zone. If it's climbing in Scotland, we've got some great mountains to try here. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you really start to build resilience. And resilience isn't something that we're born with. It's something that we have to, to push and work on. And the more you step out of your comfort zone, um, the more resilient you become. Um, I was actually explaining this to this group of children I was speaking to this morning um, and I kind of said that when I was 21 there's no way I would have been able to do the Antarctica expedition I've just done because I was nowhere near resilient enough to spend two months on my own um, but through doing Everest and the south side and then the north side and just pushing myself on other climbs I just built more and more resilience and now at the age of 29 I feel well I've just, just done it from 58 days on my own um, but I wouldn't be able to do that like five six years ago. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Antarctica. Okay, let's. let's. <laughs> I keep alluding to it, don't I? Yeah, because, yes, well, that's, what, that's what, really what we're here to talk about, Molly. This is a solo challenge. You skied on your own from when you were dropped off. How many, 600 miles, nautical uh, miles? 600 nautical miles and like 700 normal miles. Okay, 700 miles on your own, but not... You do have, a, you do have to build a support team around you. So tell me a little bit about the others and the Im impact that they have yeah, in, in supporting you so, in that journey. Like it was a solo expedition. I got a solo record for it, mm -hmm. but there was no way it was a solo venture. Like, with all these things, you have to have so much support at home. 
and also when you're out on the expedition as well. So at home I obviously had incredibly supportive family, friends, my girlfriend, incredibly supportive people that helped me with my PR and my speaking. Um, but out on the ice you've got a huge network of support if everything goes wrong. Um, so on the coast of Antarctica is where I, where I started my trip and there's a big base camp there run by okay. an American logistics company. So when I was out on my own each night I would have to ring into them at 8pm every evening um, give them my location, give them my, uh, tell them I've got no medical issues or my kit's good. So that was kind of my five minute conversation every day. So I got to speak to one person every day um, and I had to check in with them at eight o'clock each day. And if I missed a check-in, and if they didn't hear from me for say 48 hours, they'd have to come looking for me, um, which meant I had to make sure I called them every single night because mm-hmm. I didn't want that bill of them coming out searching for me. Yeah, yeah. So, and 48 hours is a long time is a long on time. your own in the yeah. ice. Yeah, if something did get so, wrong, yeah. it is a long time for sure. Um, but just having them there as backup was very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so you you learnt a lot from your Everest experience, particularly about fundraising and yeah. how, how not to write a 40-page proposal. <laughs> um, so I imagine you had to raise a significant amount for the Antarctica trip, yeah. but surely it was a lot easier this time round, having had that previous experience, or was it still...? Yeah, I, I kind of hoped it would be, but it was, again, just, just so hard. <laughs> I needed 75000 to do Antarctica. Right. Um, kind of for everything. Um, and it's just such a lot of money to to raise and even with like my previous kind of accolades and showing people I can do it it's still hard sitting down in a room with people and convincing them that this kind of expedition you're going on is going to help them with their PR with their marketing um, and I had a few, a few meetings that went really well but didn't get the funding from it um, but then as soon as you find a company that just chimes with you and they get what you're trying to do and they see the bigger picture and they see how influential it could be for their kind of audience and especially for like inspiring women and doing something a little bit different um as soon as I got those points on board yeah everything's great and that gives you so much kind of motivation down there to know that right. a company like some of the big companies like Gore-Tex that I have behind me um A-Tank Heating that I have behind me knowing that they believe so much in my trip was such a motivation to just keep going every day yeah yeah so getting to the pole uh, so you, you flew into Chile, then from there yeah. onto the, the tip of Antarctica, started your journey. So tell me about a typical day skiing towards the South Pole. Um, yeah, so I think routine down there was super important. Routine okay. and being in control. So right. I would try and wake up every day at 6.30. Um, I'd try and be on my skis for about 8.30. Okay. So that's after melting loads of snow and ice, for drinking water for the day, filling up my flasks cooking breakfast which was usually porridge um, I'm totally off porridge now I'm never going to eat porridge oh, no. <laughs> um, so eating as much as I can getting all the calories in put my tent down getting on my skis um, and throughout the day I would ski for an hour and a half and then I would stop for a 10 minute break where I'd sit on my sled and eat as much as I possibly could and drink as much as I could and then get up ski for another hour and a half and just do that over and over again throughout the day um, and by the end of it I was probably skiing for about 11 hours a day um, just trying to keep in that kind of routine all day long put my tent up, cook dinner, melt the snow and ice, which will take about two or three hours, um, and then try to get some sleep before doing it all again the next day. Did, did you end up feeling a bit like a robot going through that same process again and again? Yeah, and each day felt very similar as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you do the same thing each day, and the same thing each day. And the terrain, it did change, but not that much. Like, there was very little kind of visual stimulation on my route down there, because mm-hmm. there was a big mountain range at the beginning, um, but I was stuck in this crazy whiteout for like eight days. So I missed most of that mountains. 
and then there's a mountain range halfway but apart from that it's just white as far as you can see and like east looks the same as west and south looks the same as north um so just complete white so you've really got to kind of i would kind of say in my head i'd call it i want to lose my head like i want to just let my thoughts just wander for that hour and a half and i want to look down at my watch and realize that like 45 minutes has passed without me even noticing um which was really hard when it was steep or when the snow was hard but when the skiing was a little bit easier you could do that mm-hmm. and i kind of felt my my mind kind of opened up a little bit because i think being down there was just the ultimate headspace like my oh. mind would open up and i'd have all these memories of all sorts like things i hadn't thought about or memories i didn't know that i actually had but because you have that amount of headspace i seem to be able to access them um which was kind of kind of a cool experience yeah. Do, do you like spending a lot of time on your own normally? <laughs> Not normally, though. No. no I never no. spend any time on my own. Um, oh. I guess people don't at all. Like, even in normal life, it's probably very rare that people spend more than, like, 24 hours on their own. Even if well, it's yeah. just seeing people or going to the shop. Um, and, yeah, I hate it. I hate being on my own. So, yeah. But actually, you had this lovely... Well... Yeah. This, this. I want to call it a lovely. <laughs> I know. I'm going to see your reaction to the word lovely. <laughs> it wasn't much lovely about Antarctica, but... It was uh, quite awakening to, and nice to realise I could cope on my own, like well, yes. and that you can, yeah, you can feel a bit more, I think I felt a bit more creative as well. Okay. Like, I mean, the headspace, I've kind of planned out the business I want to start now I'm home, I've kind of planned out the things I want to achieve now I'm home, um, and you can just kind of refocus on life a little bit, because in normal life we're so busy, aren't we? Well, yeah. So busy. Yeah. And so connected to technology and emails and social media and there's never time to like let your head wander and find that kind of creativity of what you want to do in your life and just kind of re you know, like, refresh it all and press mm-hmm. the reset button a little bit um so yeah it was nice in that way yeah <laughs> mindful yeah. Yeah. yeah so you you mentioned briefly there the first eight nine days uh-huh. tell me about that because you arrived with um this desire to see Antarctica yeah. and then you arrived you couldn't see it so <laughs> tell me what the first week was like for you the first week was hell so I've been in a whiteout for eight days now eight days of seeing absolutely nothing in front of me apart from a meter it's exhausting the sun has to come out soon it has to So I was looking back at my diary a couple of days ago, and the first week is just, it's, miser- it's a miserable read, the first week. Because um, I basically landed um, my start point, a place called Hercules Inlet, and you have to land in good weather, the planes can't really fly in bad weather. The plane dropped me off, it was sunny, no wind. The plane left me, um, which was kind of a, a big moment, I kind of waved off a civilization and waved off kind of the last people I'd see for the next couple of months. Um, I started skiing, my sled. My sled weighed 105 kilograms at the start, which was very heavy. We worked out it's the weight of an international rugby player the other day. Um, so very just heavy. Dragging him along. Just dragging, <laughs> dragging a rugby player along. Um, but within about I don't know, an hour and a half, um, things changed from being nice, sunny, pleasant to really tough conditions. Because all this cloud came over, the wind picked up, my route started going uphill. Because actually, people don't really re- realise, but from to get to the South Pole, the South Pole is at 2,800 metres. So the whole route is uphill. Um, and this all started all at the same time. This huge weather front came over me that stayed on me for the next eight or nine days. Um, 
And the hardest thing, well, the wind was really hard. It was probably gusting up to about uh, 55 knots. Um, but the hardest thing was the whiteout. So this cloud came over me, and it's kind of like being inside a ping pong ball um, right. day after day. And you can't see up, you can't see down, left and right is all the same. It's just white. And it's really disorientating. And I just had a compass in front of me. I just had to follow the arrow of the compass as carefully as I could because um, that area at the beginning is quite crevassed as well. So I was like so aware that I wouldn't see a crevasse until I was, I was on it. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and it just went on and on and on. Like, the first day the whiteout came in, the second day I woke up to full whiteout, the third day was the same, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Every day I woke up, I'd get out and try to ski. I was hardly making any progress because it was so hard to, to navigate and, and just ski and move and that, that kind of weather. Um, day eight, I think I was starting to lose it a little bit. It kind of felt like, this was my new reality and I was going to be stuck inside this ping pong ball for the rest of my life. Um, I was trying to be so positive and trying to just say, tomorrow the sun's going to come out, the sun's got to come out tomorrow, and it just wasn't. Um, but then on the afternoon of day eight, the sun finally emerged and I could see a horizon, I could see some mountains off on my right hand side and I just cried. All I could do was just cry. Yeah, it was, it was very emotional. <laughs> <laughs> the sun has just come out after, after eight minutes of light out. Fuck, it feels good. There it is. Finally, it's the Antarctica. These are mountains. Fuck, that was hard. Feels so good. Fuck. Which was toughest, though, physical or mental? Um, mental. Yeah. Physically, it was a really hard trip. Um, pulling the sled was was so hard. It was just so heavy. Um, and at first, going uphill it was so hard. I would get stuck in the deep snow. Um, and you're skiing for 11 hours a day. Uh, so physically it was really, really hard. And you have to do that day after day after day. So wake up every day and do the same thing. But I think physically, like a physical challenge is, is easier in a way than a mental challenge. Because a mental challenge, it's all in your head. Um, and mentally this was so hard because I was on my own. So there's no one to uh, give you a hug. <laughs> no one to make you laugh. I realised on day 30 that I hadn't laughed for 30 days, which was a, a sad kind of realisation. Wow, yeah. <laughs> weird, really weird. Um, no one to like, make decisions with, and just such a huge distance to travel. So mentally it, it was really hard. Um, and on this trip, after the whiteout, the, the weather got much better. Things started to improve a lot, I was making more mileage. Um, but my head wasn't in it for a few days. And on all trips I can really, I can always look on the bright side, and in life I feel like I'm really lucky that I'm really op optimistic and I find it easy to look around me and be inspired by where I am and see the bigger picture that I can yeah feel happy in, in these environments but a few days after the white time my head just wasn't in it and I just had all these negative thoughts just completely swamp me and they were just thoughts that I can't do this um thoughts of like why am I here thoughts that like my ego had driven me down there and then suddenly I'm in this em environment and I for some reason was so egotistical to think that I could achieve this but I'm here and I'm like shit I can't do this um and all these thoughts just completely swamped me. And I just realised after maybe two or three days of all these negative thoughts that that 
that's what's going to stop me getting to the pole is my mind not my body like my body can do this it's my mind so one day I just decided that I needed to work on some kind of positive affirmations because if I was going to get there I needed to sort my head out uh, so I came up with these three positive affirmations that I would have to say out loud to Antarctica as loud as I possibly could to like batter away those negative thoughts um, one of them is a bit rude so I don't know if I'm okay to say it or not go on yeah <laughs> the first one was quite simple it was just to say I'm strong and I would repeat that as loud as I could um, I felt stupid at first like so stupid I've never done this before so I'd just whisper it at first but then I realised of course I'm on my own there's no one around so I just had to shout it the second one was to say I'm inspiring people and that one felt quite important because going through that pain it wasn't enough just for me to achieve something like there had to be a bigger picture it had to be making a positive impact on other people so that one's really good and the third one was a bit silly and rude but I would shout to Antarctica and shout um, I am a fucking badass as loud as I possibly <laughs> could to Antarctica um, and I've never done this before and I was so shocked at how well it worked like after I said these things out loud three times each of them and shouted them I felt so strong and so happy and as soon as those negative thoughts started to kind of come back I would just shout these things out again and batter them away and after a few days of doing this like my kind of mentality just changed and I felt happy and confident and in control and I think that's when I started to make much better decisions as well and I realised that the whole trip was just about looking after myself and being the best skinny and the best possible shape physically and more importantly mentally I think. Did you start to enjoy it at that point? Yeah yeah because the white out and before that there was no enjoyment. No. I didn't enjoy any of it um, but yeah once my head was a bit straighter I enjoyed it for yeah. sure. And when you were going through that that pain and that um, the whiteout, did did you ever actually consider kicking the can and saying that actually I'm not going to yeah, I'm not going to do this not ready? Um, and I never really thought that, and I think because I just broke it all down and just focused on one day at a time or even one hour at a time, because like in the whiteout it's so hard, but. I just had to push through that next hour and a half and I get my 10 minute break. And I push through the next hour and a half, get my 10 minute break. And then at the end of the day, I go for my tent up. And as soon as you're in your tent and you're warm and you've got food, then my whole mood just changes. Like I'm very food orientated and so I get quite hangry. So, yeah, um, we all. <laughs> so as soon as I had food, my I just felt so much more positive and happy. Good night's sleep, wake up the next day, go through it all again, get to the end of the day and you're completely exhausted. So yeah, just focusing on one day at a time and breaking it all down stop me from wanting to give up too much but maybe that white hat went on for much longer <laughs> yeah so really the way that you broke down the fact that it's a 700 mile journey was just by focusing on today yeah, or sure. this next hour and a half or yeah. looking forward to dinner or, yeah. or yeah. even even smaller like I'd break it down into 100 steps as well okay. so the whole time I would count to 100 in my head which kind of kept me in rhythm with the skiing um, but also just gave me something to aim for so I counted 100 for a thousand um, and then usually it was quite hard to count past a thousand when you're skiing so then I just went back to a hundred yeah. <laughs> <So>, yeah. <laughs> but just yeah really breaking it down and not thinking about the bigger picture like even on Everest as well it wasn't about focusing on the summit it's not focusing about getting to the South Pole it's just focusing on either that next hundred steps or that next hour and a half or the next day because um, when challenges are so big it's too daunting to think about it you just gotta do each step as well as you can yeah and then all those small steps come together to hopefully produce something um, 
good. Yeah. It's so interesting because that's what it was the, the the end goal that was what was driving you to yeah. get to the start line essentially. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. when it was about raising the funds and getting the backing and getting to Antarctica. Yeah. But then the the mind shift and the targets completely changed once you got there. Yeah, yeah. Quite a lot. Like I think for me I'm not so focused like in the run up to it you have to sell it. <laughs> yeah. So you have to sell I want to get to the South Pole, I'll be the youngest one to do this, the same with Everest. But for me, it was really about wanting to, to be in Antarctica. Okay. Because this, this vast continent just like kind of enticed me so much. I was so excited just to see it and be on my own in this kind of huge frozen landscape. So I wanted to really experience it. And Everest was the same. I wanted to experience the different um, stages of the climb and feel what it was like to climb the Lazy Face and what it was like to walk through the Western Coombe. Um, so yeah, it was all about the experience I'm not going to stop, but you have to sell the end goal and the, the summiting Everest or the, the reaching the yeah. South Pole for sure. Yeah, yeah. We got up a couple of weeks ago, um, and then you said, you know, I'm I'm still kind of processing, yeah. you know, my my story, how I feel about the trip. So t- tell me a little bit about what it's like after, you know, the aftermath. What, how do you feel after you've reached that that goal? Yeah. It's kind of weird, and I think I'm still kind of processing it. Because um, obviously it's such a huge goal. And I spent the whole 12, 18 months before focused on the training, focused mm-hmm. on getting sponsored together. And then you go there, you do the trip, and you achieve it. And then afterwards, it's kind of, it's not like a down because there's so much going on, but a lot of people after big trips experience post-expedition mm-hmm. blues, where you feel a bit sad, and feel a bit like, what on earth am I going to do now once you get back? Um, and I don't think I've really experienced that with this trip yet. I've been so busy since getting back mm-hmm. um, but I think it's still taking a little bit to process I've been doing a lot of talks recently um, schools and some corporate stuff and that helps I think in a way because it helps can, the processing yeah because yeah. you can sit down with a friend and tell them about it but once you're actually got to stand up on stage and present about the whole experience and kind of draw themes about self-belief and fear from it all I think that really helps to think about what the journey actually meant to me and the big mm-hmm. picture and how I can maybe inspire or influence other people through the journey as well. Um, mm. So yeah, I think it would take a long time to process. Um, but no, I feel good to be home and I feel really proud of this journey. Yeah. And so you should. <laughs> <laughs> but when you look back, what part of the trip are you most proud of? Um, good question. <laughs> I think, like, with Antarctica, I wanted to do it solo because I wanted to prove myself that I could. Because on Everest, I had guides, amazing guides, great, great people, and Sherpa guides as well, and strong teams around me, real strong teams, which made it so successful. Um, but I was always kind of had the back of my mind, like, can I do this kind of thing on my own? Can I achieve in this environment? Because even when I'm climbing in Scotland, I'll always go out, usually with guides who are climbing partners, and I always tend to pick people that are much better than me, because I, I know that they're there, and I can rely on them a little bit, because I'm not that confident um, okay. in different walks of life. But I really wanted to prove myself that I could achieve this. And I think probably within the first couple of days on my own, I realised I could achieve it physically. I could um, you know, work in that environment okay, and I could look after myself in that environment. But I wasn't sure about the mental side of it. Um, so I think I'm really proud that I didn't lose my mind after two months on my own. Um, and I got to the end still feeling quite strong and, and feeling quite happy. So yeah, I think that's... Like a... Badass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And... You know, this is probably a really annoying question that you must get asked every yeah. time you do uh, an interview or a talk, but what's on the horizon for you? Um, I wish I had a good answer for you. I'm 
so expedition wise I'm not sure like okay. getting back from a trip it always takes probably about six months or more to uh, understand it all to forget the pain so when the pain right. is still fresh and the suffering is still fresh you're like mm-hmm. never want to go back and do that again but quite quickly you forget the pain and all you remember is the amazing parts like mm. all I remember now is these incredible sunrises and sunsets and I remember the views I don't really remember how it felt to be in that much pain <laughs> so when that kind of subsides from Antarctica maybe I'll start thinking about another trip um, but at the moment I'm just really focusing on using this story to try and inspire as many people as I can um, I've been doing lots of school talks quite a few corporate talks um, and I just really enjoy talking about all of the experiences um, hoping to work with young people a lot more mm-hmm. when I was out there I was thinking a lot about which way I want to take my life and I think it will be sharing these experiences and hopefully taking young people on experiences as well um, I'd love to take them on expeditions to the Himalayas and, and show them these places that inspire me so much and hopefully inspire them and grow their confidence as well so yeah, I think it'll take take you kind of road down that way. Awesome. Molly, thank you very much. A pleasure, thank you. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast with host Gemma Soul and today's guest, adventurer and motivational speaker, Molly Hughes. We've had some really great guests on this podcast, but I have to admit, when I sat opposite Molly, I actually felt a bit starstruck. I mean, you can dream about these types of adventure, but it takes real courage and commitment to turn dreams into reality. And you could really feel and sense that tenacity when talking to Molly, despite the fact that she actually describes herself as quite shy. It was also interesting to learn about her drivers. I had, perhaps naively, assumed that a large part of her motivation was to achieve world records, But speaking to her, it almost felt like breaking records was more of a marketing tool. And what really mattered to her was having a positive impact on others. Molly is represented by Speaker Buzz. If you're interested to explore speaking opportunities with her, visit their website at speakerbuzz.co.uk. You can also find links to Speaker Buzz on our website, along with more photos of Molly in Antarctica. Just go to schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. Thanks for listening and see you soon.